Uh, turn to Acts chapter 6. So the last uh, few years, we've, we've picked a theme. I guess I should say I've picked a theme for us to focus on for 12 months. So usually in September, that kind of kicks us off. And so for the next 12 months, we'll focus on that theme. Our theme since this past September has been unity in community. And I want to speak briefly on a couple things. Um, there's kind of two ways you can look at it when I, when I choose a theme. As a member, thinking of the theme and considering it, you can kind of think, one, oh, he just kind of came up with that out of nowhere. Um, you know, like, oh, that sounds like a great idea. Let's do that. Or two, you can think of it like God directed me towards that. And I guess it could be a combination where I'm working on it and praying and God leads me towards it. Uh, but with something like that where we're going to focus on it for, for 12 months, like I'm, I'm not just like pulling it out of my back pocket or, or trying to come up with something that I think is really fancy or cool. I'm, I'm trying to gauge to the best of my ability uh, with Justice's input where we think the, uh, maybe the thermometer is, where is our congregation at, and what would be best for us to emphasize over the next 12 months. If we could choose one topic, one, one theme, and, and kind of just hit that over and over again, what would that be? And so I would say that um, I strongly believe that the Lord uh, directed us, me, me and Justice, us as a church, to really focus on and have our theme be unity in community. I believe he actually did that for a number of reasons. Um, and which I will admit weren't necessarily very clear when, when I first um, felt like the Lord impressing that upon me to do. But one, I think it's, it's possible that you, you uh, us, have disunity with others and the Lord wants us to fix it. I mean, it, he doesn't just come up with the theme, just be like, oh, this would be a great thing for them to learn intellectually. Like, if the Lord, if we believe he's directing our past and he's guiding our church and you are trusting the pastors to, to take us in the, in the ways that the Lord wants us to go, then, then unity and community, that's the thing that he wants to emphasize to you. So, uh, be open to that. Be considering it. Is there disunity with others that the Lord wants you to fix? Especially within this church, but, but outside as well. Second, I think he's emphasizing that you will have disunity at some point. And the Lord is preparing you ahead of time to make sure you fix it when it happens. So hopefully this becomes, this idea of unity becomes a part of the fabric of who you are so that when disunity starts to creep up or you recognize that there is disunity between you and another person, you endeavor to work on that and to fix it as best you can. Romans 12:18 says if possible so far as it depends on you live peaceably with all. So you strive to the best of your ability to be at peace with all. Third and I actually think this is the most important um, because I believe an attack is coming against our unity. I believe that. I don't know where from who from what uh, at what time but I believe an attack is coming and the Lord is using these 12 months to prepare us for that attack on our unity. So that when the attack comes, we are prepared to stand it. Just like I said Friday night, if we are unified, 
we can withstand a thousand onslaughts of the enemy regardless of how bad the attack is. But if we are disunified, then one single arrow will destroy us. So we need to be walking in unity with one another. So one, let's make sure we strengthen the relationships around us with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's not be quick to judge a situation with harshness, to be rash in our judgment, to walk with uh, scowling, grumbling, mumbling, or complaining. My, my, second, my second job, which I got almost at the same time that uh, Andrew and I got married, so back in 1999, my second job, which was the same, similar to my first job, which was power washing and staining decks. I've been doing it a long time. I remember my first day on the job. I'm with my boss, and we're going to, uh, to stain a deck, and we show up there, and I'm looking at the deck, and I'm like, man, whoever did this before us, they did an awful job. And there's this long pause, and he's like, it was me. <laughs> Like my boss, I just insulted my boss. My first day of work. <clears throat> um, yeah, it was interesting. I had some interesting times with, with my second boss, which he was not a believer. Um, but one of the things I learned in the time that I worked with him, I learned some different things. I learned that the influence that people can have around you can impact you without you even realizing it. My first boss, many of, of you know Jim Cummings, was you know, just an awesome man of God, and he taught me a great, great work ethic when it comes to working. My second boss was almost like the flip side of Jim in terms of work ethic. So I'd get dropped off at a place to stain a deck. I might get like one little tiny tarp to cover whatever plants or concrete or whatever, and then just stain the deck to the best of my ability. Stain would be all over the place. You know, it'd just be, I'd be killing bushes. It, it was just a mess. But what I realized over time was that started to affect my, my work ethic. So his work ethic was rubbing off on me. So I ended up, without even realizing it fully, started to become kind of sloppy in my work ethic. And I, and I would just chalk it, well, he's only given me like this one little thing to try to cover things up with. He's only given me this over here. I had excuses. But, that, but those are just excuses. So his, his work ethic was rubbing off on me. I remember the time that, that I finally got to put in my two weeks Notice, it was a really good day. <laughs> but I remember telling him, like, hey, this is two weeks, and he had made some different empty promises to me for quite some time, and, and then he tried to, you know, he, I was kind of shouldering the load for, for much of the work, and then he started backtracking once I gave him my two weeks. Oh, I'll increase your pay, which he had been promising for a long time. I'll do this, I'll do that. And I was like, no, nah, it's, just, it's just time for us to come to an end. I was really hoping that when I gave him my two weeks, he'd just be like, hey, just get out of here. I was like really hoping that, but he didn't. Because he really needed me. <laughs> um, I was the guy doing the work. And so uh, those next two weeks were very challenging because I was like ready to check. I'd been ready to check out a long time, but once I gave him my two weeks, like I was really ready to check out. And it really kind of checked my heart to see like, was I going to fulfill the two weeks and give my 40 hours for each of those weeks, give my whatever eight plus hours a day and really work hard, or is I just going to kind of like slough off and, and make it through those two weeks? So it was kind of a check on where I was at and how I was going to handle a situation. And so there's two, two paths you could have taken on something like that. 
I mean, you can grumble and moan and complain and just kind of like bear and grin it and get through those two weeks, or you can walk through it in righteousness and wholeness with walking the way the Lord wants and being the worker that he wants. Ultimately, my boss was not my boss. My boss was God himself. So who cares if I'm pleasing my boss or not? I mean, I need to do the things he's asking me to do, but ultimately I need to be concerned about what my real boss thinks. That affects how I'm going to walk out those next two weeks, and it did, even though it was very challenging. So I think sometimes we ourselves can find ourselves in different situations, and we might be frustrated, or we might be facing something difficult, maybe even inside the church, and we can take one or two paths. And one path, I'd say, is like the path of, path of disunity, and we can mumble and groan and complain and be upset about things, or we can take a different path, and we can take the path of righteousness because we know we got a boss that is the boss of bosses. And so we can walk in righteousness and, and aim to please him, regardless of whatever else is going on in our lives. We have to remember, and this is a beautiful truth we never want to forget, God has always wanted a relationship with his people. Always. I mean, think back to the garden. That's why if, if you mess up and you just try to toss away the garden, and just, that's just myth or story or they're made up, you lose so much stuff. You lose foundations upon foundations of biblical truth, including that God has always wanted a relationship with his people because God walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. That was how he set it up from the beginning. Friends, that's what blew me away when I was 18 years old and it came to Christianity, that God wanted to walk with me in the cool of the day, that he wanted to have a relationship with me, that he wanted to know me. Of course, he already knew me, but he wanted me to know him. And we get some amazing descriptions in Scripture about our relationship with him and how God interacts with us. Look at Psalm 23. In verse 1, it says, A psalm of David, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. So that's the imagery that, that begins this psalm. And then look how he unrolls it. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Isn't that the God that you'd want to be following after? Like, that's a nice picture. He makes me lie down in the green pastures, right? I mean, there's peace. There's rest. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Like, that, that's the God that I want to be following. And that's a God that I can tell just from these couple verses that, that he cares about me, that he loves me, that he has my best interests at heart. Look at Exodus chapter 6, verse 6. It says, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Again, this picture of God rescuing people in bondage. 
rescuing people literally in slavery, and he says, I will be your God. One more passage in the Old Testament, Jeremiah 31. He starts out in verse 1. At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. When Israel sought for rest, the Lord appeared to him from far away. And then this is one of the best verses in the Old Testament. I have loved you with an everlasting love. He didn't just love us. That's great. That's awesome. That's amazing. But he loved us with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. And that's God's love. It's an everlasting love. Like, what makes us worthy of that? Nothing. No, he, he chooses us. He redeems us. How does he do, do that? Laura mentioned it when she was sharing. Right? The Father is the one who sends the Son. He sends Jesus for us. We're caught up in our sins. We're doing all sorts of crazy stuff. All sorts of unbiblical stuff. All sorts of unrighteousness. So the Son does what we couldn't do. And lives the perfect life. A life of righteousness. And then he, he pays the perfect price. Instead of you dying eternally and suffering punishment, Jesus is like, hey, I'm willing to do that for you. I will take your place. So Jesus is on the cross. It's just not a physical death. It is literally the wrath of God poured out on him. God will pour out his wrath on one of two people when it comes to your relationship with him. Either his wrath will be poured out on you or to be poured out on Jesus, which it was. But which one is it going to be? Because Jesus is like, hey, I'll take the wrath for you. But friends, there's a cost to that for you. It is you humbling yourself. It is you realizing that you can't do it on your own, that no amount of good deeds could help you avoid the wrath of God. So you need Jesus to take your place. You need Jesus to take your sin. You need Jesus to receive the full wrath of God for you so that you can avoid that wrath. And that is exactly what Jesus did on the cross. He took the wrath of God for you. You want, you want to avoid the wrath? You have to trust in what, what Jesus did for you. So I encourage you to trust him. Then what does the Spirit do? Like He takes that work that Christ did and he comes into your life. So when we talk about the Spirit, usually you hear the word regeneration. He regenerates you. You can't regenerate yourself. That's kind of weird. No, he regenerates you. He does the work that you can't do. The Spirit regenerates. So we have a unity individually with God, but there is also a corporate unity that we have with God. The church as a whole united with God. That's what we really focused on this weekend was the church united as a whole. But there's also a unity between you and God. You need to make sure that unity is straight and set up and righteous so that this unity can be righteous and set up the way God wants. A 
Look at John 17. I know we looked at it Friday night, but we're going to look at it just briefly here. Verse 11. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me. That's the first request in these first 11 verses when Jesus is praying to the Father. This is actually the first request that he makes for us. Holy Father, keep them. That's the request. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. And all throughout this, Jesus is asking for us to be one. That is his prayer. Of all the different things, he could have prayed for us. The theme throughout is unity. Friends, if you don't catch a hold of that, then you are missing a key component of what Jesus wants for you and what he wants for the church. Verse after verse after verse, the longest prayer of Jesus. And he doesn't mention 15 things. He doesn't mention five things. There's one singular focus, and it's unity. That's how important Jesus saw it was for us. If Jesus saw it as important, we better make sure it is important to us. We better strive for unity. Look at Acts chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Friends, any issue involving people can lead to disunity. Any issue. Churches split over carpet choices, over how many Sunday school classes to have, over what day to cut the grass, over what bushes to plant at the front entrance. Some of the silliest things people have let split them apart. Silly, silly, silly stuff. We've got to guard against that. And I want you to notice here, it's probably potentially skipped your purview before, but how many people do they choose here to address this situation? Seven, right? Y'all know seven. But let's look at their names again. Stephen, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas. Not a single Hebrew name in that list. You ever thought about that before? What names are these? These are Greek names or Hellenistic names. Some of your versions in verse 1, a, a complaint by, by the Greeks rose against the Hebrews. So there's a problem, and, and, and the Greeks are saying, hey, our, our, our widows are being, they're being left out. They get everyone together, the Greeks and the Hebrews 
the believers, both sets. And what do they do? Hey, this is how we think we want you to fix it. The leadership says it. Where do they get it? From the Lord. But who does the whole congregation set? Seven Greek men. There's not even an even split. In fact, there couldn't be with seven. You couldn't even have like a 4-3. They could have, but they chose all seven to be Greek. Think about that. What could these Greek men have done to the Hebrew widows? You ever think about that? They could have flipped the tables. No pun intended. But they could have flipped the tables and neglected the Hebrew widows. But the church trusted that God would work through these Greek men. To solve a Greek problem? No, to solve a church problem. They trusted the Lord. And what did God do? He fixed this situation. The leaders step in, in this case the apostles, they give direction. But who is responsible for restoring the unity? Ultimately, God himself. But we see the people, the people address the situation. Unity in the church rests on the members of the church. If there's disunity, it's the members who help fix the problem. Why? Because God's equipped you to do so. Sometimes we're like, oh, oh, the pastor, he'll, he'll fix it. No, you help fix it. If you see disunity, you help fix it. What's the immediate result? Look back in Acts 6. Verse 1, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, they were increasing, that was happening, the church is growing, but then we get this little situation that occurs... Go to verse 7, the last one we read. And the word of God continued to increase. So it was increasing, but now there's a problem. And it has to be addressed. It's a huge problem. It's causing disunity. It's causing grumbling and complaining. They address it, and what's the result? The word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Even if you continue to go on, they're emboldened to evangelize. The very next verse, and Stephen, oh, he's one of those seven Greek men. Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. So the church is emboldened to be the church, to evangelize, to disciple, to minister to people. What happens? The persecution increases, right? Stephen ends up getting stoned. That's chapter 7. Takes us to the beginning of chapter 8. The persecution increases. Verse 1 of chapter 8. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. But guess what, my friends? The church was prepared for it. They were prepared for the persecution. They were prepared for it. Imagine if the church was still squabbling about food for the elderly. They wouldn't have been prepared for it. 
It would have been that one arrow that took them out. Even when we keep reading in Acts 8, we see Philip. Oh, is he one of those seven? Let's just double check. Oh yeah, there he is in verse 5. Philip, yep. Good job, Philip. Now those who were scattered, verse 4, went about preaching the word. So they're persecuted. Sometimes you flee persecution. Sometimes you stay. That's actually the pattern you see throughout. But what do you do when you're scattered? You go into hiding? No. You keep preaching. Maybe this area or that area or this area is shut down to you. Then you go to the next area and you keep preaching. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. So Samaria gets the word and there's a small revival that breaks out. Does that happen if the church is still squabbling? No, it doesn't. Then the Ethiopian eunuch gets saved. Going down, starting in verse 26 of chapter 8. Again, does that happen if the church is squabbling, if the church is disunified? No, it doesn't. And then in Acts 9, Paul himself gets saved. Verse 1, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And what does God do? He gets a hold of Paul, and he saves him. If there's infighting, gospel work is hindered. We're we're more concerned about making sure our rights are presented, making sure more about our way getting done on some of the most trivial, silliest stuff. But we elevate it, just like Pastor Joe talked about. We elevate non-essentials to essential. Some of the silliest stuff. None of this stuff happens if there's infighting. None of this stuff happens if we're disgruntled because we end up focusing more on ourselves and defending what we want. Here's the thing, friends, and some of you need to hear this. You need to love the church you have, not the church you wish you had. Because if you love the church you wish you had, You're just loving the theoretical, not the actual. And the theoretical doesn't exist. And if you just love the theoretical, you'll always love that which doesn't actually exist. God loves his actual, physical church, us. Not what he hopes we might possibly one day be, but us, as we are. That's kind of the beauty of the gospel. Right where you're at, right where I'm at, with all the ugliness, with all the filth, with all the sin, with even some of the stuff that we've thought or even done or even said this morning alone. God doesn't like, oh, I I love the theoretical of what you will one day be. No, he loves the actual. 
of what you are. That's the beauty of the gospel. Right where you're at, he loves you. He's not waiting for you to clean up. He knows you can't. So he comes along and cleans you up. So love the church you have. The gospel is at stake when it comes to unity. Understand the application here. The unity of the church was important for the clarity of the gospel. If, if they're all infighting, what does that say when the outsiders look in? Does that garble up the gospel? Absolutely. Is, is it clear? If, if, if outsiders look at the church and we're all fighting and there's disunity, is it a clear presentation of the gospel? No, there's no gospel clarity there. They, they don't see the gospel. It is very, at best, dim and dark and shaded. It's messed up. Even if you think about the Greeks and the Hebrews in Acts 6, what message might have been sent to the Greeks had things not been worked out with their widows? You're not wanted. You're not included. That's a distorted gospel. The unity of the church was also important for the promulgation of the gospel, or you could say the spreading of the gospel. Again, imagine if in the early church this issue wasn't figured out and figured out quickly. It would have damaged the credibility of the gospel witness. I mean, who wants a part of that? They're all fighting about food. Who wants to be a part of that? I don't want no part of that. They're telling me about Jesus and bringing us together and how... But, but they can't even agree on, on some food distribution. And, and that's what outsiders see when they hear about some of the, the silly, trivial squabbles of churches. Like, they can't even agree on stuff like that, but they want me to come and, and submit to their Lord and Master? Like, why would I want that? It hurts the gospel witness. Where does disunity come from? Look at 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Uh, how does Paul start 1 Corinthians? I mean, that first chapter, I mean, there's division in the church. And all the issues that the Corinthians had, and they had a lot of them, he starts out by dealing with the most important first the division. If they can't get the division right, then he really doesn't have much hope for anything else getting settled. So disunity comes, guess what? From us. And it can come from unbelievers from the outside. They can come and try to rattle things and stir things up. It can come from false teachers too. I think it's possible that that attack that I referenced earlier could come from false teachers. This is why dealing with false teachers, why it's so important. Like, how do you treat a wolf? Like, oh, oh, you nice little thing. Yeah. That's not how you treat a wolf. That's how you treat a puppy dog. But you treat a wolf like that, you're going to get torn apart. And some people treat false teachers like puppy dogs. That's not how you deal with false teachers. Friends, do you want to destroy a church? Then attack its unity. Get the elders divided. Get the deacons bickering. 
get the ministry leaders undercutting one another, listen to gossip about the leadership. I mean, that's a pretty good start. And then complain about every little thing to everyone. And make sure you second-guess every decision. And have a whiny attitude. And if you don't get your way, let people know it. Never serve. Always demand to be served. And make sure the pastor knows you deserve top priority in the church. Oh, and never trust the pastors. Those destroy church. We need to do the opposite. We're, we're taking communion today. I, I put it at the end. <clears throat> because when we come together, the scripture talks about us, and they literally would come together at a table in the early church, but coming together at, at the table. And if you've ever had, I, I know you all are, you got have great families and everything is going on, but in my, in my family, if there's any disunity, Meals can be a little awkward, right? Like you're sitting there in silence or with some sullen or upset looks on your face. There's not much talking. But, but when it comes to the Lord's Supper, the sign is supposed to be that we're coming together in unity. That we're coming together, Paul talks about, as one, as one body. So yes, there's individual us, but we corporately come and when we come, we're saying, one, we have unity with the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Like, we have a right relationship with Him. We're one of His. We actually have trusted in Him. I have a seat at the table with Jesus. I'm eating with Him. That's that, like, vertical relationship between us and God. But then there's the horizontal relationship. Like, I'm coming and I'm actually saying, hey, I'm, I'm sitting at the table, but, but so is Joe and Julie and Frank and Bob and... Like, we're all together, and, and it's not an awkward meal. There's nothing odd about it. it. It's a display of our unity, that we can come together. And sometimes if we have offenses against people, we just got to forgive them. You don't necessarily have to go talk to them. Sometimes you do, but if you got offenses against people, forgive them. You don't ever have to wait for someone to come and ask you for forgiveness to forgive them. All right, bitterness will eat you up. Bitterness will eat you up. And like I've said before, you know, bitterness is like, you know, taking rat poison and, and eating it yourself and expecting the rat to die. I mean, it just destroys you. It doesn't do any good. So we're, we're, <clears throat> when we take this right now, I want us to take this as, as one body. And that we, as the children of the living God, are coming together. And we are signifying, when we take this today, that we are one. And there is unity among us. That we are unified as one body. doesn't mean we won't ever disagree. That doesn't mean we won't ever get in little squabbles or fights. But we will endeavor to make it right when those things happen. That we are children of the living God. And we come and sit at his table. And he testifies over us of how good he is and how he will work through us and in us by his spirit to keep us united. It's not something we can do on our own. If you need to grab one of these right now, go ahead and grab one just so everyone has one. And let's take this today as a statement of faith 
that we are one body, that we are united as one body of Christ here today, that we will endeavor to continue to walk in that unity, and we will make it a primary focus for us because Jesus himself makes it a primary focus. So let's remove that first part, and let's take the bread together. And now let's take the juice together. I'll have the worship team come on up once they're done. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would protect our unity. Give us the shields of faith to hold them up. Give us the weapons of the word and your spirit. Lord, give us the trio of virtue, love, faith, hope, that we would walk in those things. Help us to consider others' interests more important than our own, to lay aside our own desires and to say, not my will be done, but your will be done. And we thank you that it is done on earth as it is in heaven. In spirit, we ask you would, you would sweep across us and upon us and in us right now to have us unified. And whatever disunity might exist, you'd wipe it away now. You'd wash it away. You'd sweep it away. And you would do this so that the gospel is clear to us in the church and outside the church, so that the gospel continues to go forth and there's no impediment to it, so that your name is glorified and not sullied. Do this, we ask, Lord, for your glory. Amen.